Welcome to the Monsoon Project, where we dive into some of the most perplexing and pressing issues facing the Asian Pacific today. The Monsoon Project is the platform for student voices across the Asia Pacific. We're based at the Crawford School of the Australian National University, but we welcome any student with an interest in Asia Pacific affairs. To write for us, head over to themonsoonproject.org for more information. In this episode, we will be chatting to Bianca Hennessy, a PhD candidate at the School of Culture, History and Language here at the Australian National University. Joining us will also be Oliver Lilford, an undergraduate specializing in Pacific Studies here at the ANU. So I think good question to start with. Um, what is Pacific Studies? I think a lot of students looking at it go, do you just study the ocean? Is it like looking at like a tribe of 50 people in like some island? Like what actually is Pacific Studies? Actually, when I was doing my PhD field work, I always asked this of the people I was interviewing because I wanted to know how to answer this question. Because <laughs> um, it is so many things. The Pacific is a third of the planet and there are hundreds of ancient, vibrant cultures there. But Pacific studies perhaps is best defined when we separate it out from other ways of studying the Pacific. So it's not a solely disciplinary way of looking at the world. We think that disciplinary lenses are really important, but we like to blend them and get creative. So one day we might be reading an ethnography, another day we might be reading a history, another day we might be dipping our toes into like linguistics or political science um, and working with people rather than just like studying them as, you know, rats in a lab, like working with communities and serving them. And really like trying to centre Indigenous knowledges um, and centre the agency and self-determination and and social justice struggles of Pacific Islanders all over the world. So in that way, I kind of think of it as more linked to Indigenous studies and and what they call in America ethnic studies rather than sort of a, a kind of really bland managerial area studies look at the region. And I think that's what confuses people as well. I think sometimes when mm. we when we say, are oh, we doing Pacific studies? And they go sort of, what? Mm. Because as you try to start explaining it and you sort of go into what you were saying, Bianca, mm. they, they're so used to the sort of disciplinary structure of university. Mm. And so, I don't know, schooled in those ways of thinking and, and seeing the world that Sometimes it's yeah, it's hard, it's hard to sort of reconcile a, a very very different way of looking at the world. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's what I, I'd say. I think it's a it's a it's a way of looking at the world. It's an analytical lens that sort of tries to break the mold on a lot of things. Yeah, okay. In that case, I think this leads us into a question of why should we study the Pacific and like Pacific studies? Um, I think a lot of people, you know, they look at it and go, oh, what job prospects is that? Yeah. Um, you know, especially, and I think a lot of security students or like students who, who do other disciplines are quick to dismiss it. Mm-hmm. Um, security. Like, yeah. I mean, like, what, what, what would you say to that? Like, how would you convince people to study the Pacific? For me personally, I think it's the sort of critical outlook you get on the world. And when I sort of came to university, I did, I had a very prescriptive view of what the Pacific was and what Pacific studies was going to be for me. Um, I sort of had this idea of environmental science and I was going to study the Pacific Islands themselves, you know, the biogeography of it. But the first reading I got was Apelli Howoff's Our Sea of Islands. And I remember sitting in my room going through that and just each page just going, whoa, what? (laughs) And just having like that experience of your like worldview just flipped on its head mm. um, was super, super exciting and sort of opened me up to this this world of of knowing that I hadn't encountered before, hadn't even imagined encountering before. Mm. And so the, the Pacific Studies, I think, is, is so critically important because it introduces you to these new ways of knowing and being and learning and belonging mm. and understanding, I don't know, pedagogies and things like that from a very different perspective. And that it, it invariably is going to be useful 
and and important for humanity really yeah um, for anyone's humanity is how to understand and empathize with another perspective mm. and critically engage with that perspective as well yeah that's it, yeah. absolutely how i would answer that question too i mean there are plenty of people who go into studying the pacific because there are um, ways in which Australia is imbricated in the Pacific that involve large amounts of money and the defence force and our fear that, like, Melanesia is going to erupt and, like, seep into us or something like that. And, like, that's all well and good, but I think that what Pacific studies can do for you is give you that much wider, richer, empathetic way of just coexisting with other people. Um, and in terms of job prospects... Like, I think we need to think a bit more widely and more creatively about what that kind of critical empathy and sort of radically hopeful way of engaging with others might lead us to. Like, they might be opportunities that we can't necessarily think through right now. That's what I hope anyway. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And I think in the, in the case you brought up with Melanesia, I think also Pacific Studies allows you, by nature of the fact that it, it sort of separates itself out of the disciplines, it sort of sits in the spaces between it. It allows you to see the things that are often between assumed like assumptions and things like that, the, the sort of hidden histories, the hidden stories that, that were often overlooked but are critically important to informing present-day events and things mm. like that. So if you look at like colonialism in the Pacific especially, Pacific Studies really focuses on unearthing those those sort of silenced histories and how they shape today um, and inform the assumptions that we carry with us today and try to break down those assumptions importantly as well. Okay, that's a good point. Um, I think earlier you mentioned so how Pacific Studies helped with the ways of knowing and broadening your perspective. Mm. Is there any good example, specific example you can mention about that? I think in particular scientific knowledge. I think that's probably been been probably one of the biggest things for me because I'm sort of deeply interested in the idea of, of environmental science and that is intrinsically linked with place and how we conceptualize the environment. I think understanding that place can be more than just a physical location. So I moved from Zimbabwe when I was five and ever since I've sort of moved all across Australia. I've lived in various different places and I've never really stayed in one place longer than three years. So I never really understood what place sort of meant. It was always just, let's move, let's move, let's move. And then you come across people that have sort of tracked a genealogy that stretches back 3,000 years to one island and that's incredible. And that depth of connection to one area and having it, you know, woven into everyday life is a really, really powerful way of looking at the world. And that then is intimately linked with the science of that place as well. So if you imagine that they've been conducting empirical um, observations of that place for 3,000 years, and we come along and tell them that it's ethnoscience, it's, you know, just traditional knowledge, then that's, that's really problematic. And so sort of learning that has probably been a key example for me. Okay, that's a good point. Is there anything you want to add, Bianca? In terms of ways of knowing, I've been trying to think through this in my own research because I'm, I'm fascinated by the idea that there might be, well, there definitely are lots of different ways of knowing the world and existing in the world. But I really want, I crave like concrete examples of that, like I guess you do by asking that question. Um, and I, I think that pedagogy in Pacific studies is a really interesting way of looking at that. So, for example, if we're studying a bunch of cultures which for thousands of years didn't have a system of writing, but they did have systems of, you know, remembering 50 generations of a genealogy or understanding how to navigate the ocean over thousands of kilometres. There's deep knowledge there that's not communicated in ways that we necessarily immediately understand. 
And so like I'm really fascinated by how educators uh, try to turn that into their classroom practice. So they might say like, no, like you've got to get out of your comfort zone. You've got to be creative. You've got to use your body. Um, Perhaps your emotions might be involved and you might need to bring your whole self to your work in a much more holistic sense. And that is always a negotiation then between like what we expect of a typical learning experience and what we see as like acceptable learning outcomes and what might be closer to like a, a truly Pacific way of learning. And so, I'm yeah, I'm really interested in people who are, are trying new things in that space. And it's always just a process of, of trial and error and, and people just jumping on board. And like just going back to something you said earlier, you said there's like a lot of the interest in the Pacific is defense related. Is that, you know, is that necessarily a good thing um, for Pacific studies? The Pacific studies that I am writing about right now kind of sets itself apart from that community in, in some critical ways. It's a question for perhaps another person at another time as to whether that's good for the Pacific itself. I'm not really an expert in that area, but I think that it's If we talk about like Australia's public sphere and how we regard the Pacific, I think it is really problematic that we see the Pacific either as a place of conflict or poverty or like a tourism, like a place we go to sit on a beach. Mm. Sort of very simplistic lenses that we apply to it. They're so reductive. Again, uh, yeah, they erase a lot of the complexity around around Mm. the reality of the Pacific Islands. Yeah. And it's it's so much richer and more fruitful and productive and respectful to look at people's lives like as they are, not as as they are in times of crisis. And I think, yeah, it assumes that we have nothing to learn from the Pacific. Yeah, whereas for sure. We really do. Mm. And what Bianca was mentioning just before in terms of, you know, the way that knowledge was communicated through Um, like heritage art forms and things like that. Mm. Um, There's so much we can learn from that, particularly in sort of like how to lead a sustainable lifestyle, that that holistic conception of... Mm. Of, of place, of spirit, of everything. And it can be so easily dismissed as sort of like arty fart. <laughs> <laughs> but it's absolutely not. No, no, there's so much substance in these things that might be perhaps feminized or perhaps like dismissed as being fluffy. And it's like, yeah. no, there's so much knowledge there. There's so much like, like critical insight into how to live on this planet. Exactly, because yeah. it's different and it, it's, it goes against those often unacknowledged and unrecognized assumptions that we hold. Mm. We, we dismiss it. Mm. Okay, that's a very good point about this sort of the, these assumptions we have about the Pacific. Is there anything specific you want to elaborate further on just for our listeners? A Pacific example? Yeah, Pacific exa- a Pacific example, yes. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> we passed it briefly, but the wayfinding, the sort of knowledge that comes with navigating 3,000 kilometers of open ocean in a boat without, you know, mm. all of the scientific instruments that we now consider essential to navigation is just... Like that's a feat beyond imagination, really. I think we've discussed it before, but it's akin, if not more adventurous than flying to the moon, really, because we've always been able to see the moon. And for a period of time, when the first Pacific settlers were sailing their boats across the ocean, there would be, you know, 90 kilometers in which they could see neither the land they came from nor the land they were going to. And to find your way in that situation, to sort of read the context of one's environment, so accurately as to find new islands really scattered in the most vast ocean in the entire world Mm. is quite a feat. 
Yeah, absolutely. And the example that Oliver's are referencing there is an example that comes from oral history and archaeological evidence of the first settlement of Manus Island in Papua New Guinea. And I think that sort of brings it back to the present day, right? Like mm. when Australians hear Manus, they don't think of 26,000 years of like this deep, intimate knowledge of the environment. They think of what Australia does and what Australia needs in that place. But we don't think of what we could learn from mm. those places and the people who have lived there for thousands and yeah. thousands of years. I think the Pacific is often thought of as a canvas on which, or, mm. or a theatre or something that in think which things happen, but mm. they're, they're not actors themselves. They're sort of like the stage props mm. and everything happens around them. And we don't accept that knowledge is generated within the Pacific. We think we generate knowledge about the Pacific. Mm. So Pacific Studies is sort of about turning that on its head. Wow, that's quite impressive. I realize your research is on how we mm. teach Pacific studies in different areas. Um, would you just be willing to elaborate more on that? Yeah. There has been a lot of work done in this space by people here at the ANU and our friends in across the Pacific, but particularly in New Zealand and in Hawaii and Fiji um, and a bunch of other places where people are saying that, like, the model of university learning where maybe you have a two-hour lecture where you sit as a passive listener in a lecture listening to somebody who claims expertise and then in a shoot you like say your bit and then you stay silent for the rest of it it doesn't really begin to approach the way in which we need to relate to other people if we perhaps accept the premise that we learn best in relationships and in collaboration with others and when we're pushing ourselves out of our like intellectual comfort zones then that model of learning doesn't really do anything right like it might be sort of comfortable and safe so you know here at the ANU like Carti's class Pasi 2001 like students have to like learn a song and a dance and they have to know each other's names in the class like when I did that course that was the first time I learned the names of other people in the class I was like what is this what's happening and those people like some of them are like literally my best friends now or like you know it might involve going to the islands and learning with people it might involve um talking to people who you're friends with who are part of the Pacific Islander diaspora and saying like hey, like, I never thought about this, but, like, what language do you speak at home? Like, what do you do at Christmas time? Like, things like that. There's a lot of talk of, like, learning through doing and learning through experiencing. And then, obviously, you know, there's still, like, scholarly rigour there, like, analysing it, writing essays, doing all that stuff, doing deep research, going to the archives, things like that. Um, but thinking just, like, more holistically about what a learning experience looks like. And I think, yeah, a key, just touching up on that as well, not touching up, sorry, <laughs> adding to that, mm. um, is that like self-reflection as well is mm. part of that holistic picture as well, that Always, you have to yeah. you have to analyse why you're doing this and where you're coming from and what assumptions that you might make. And that's a really difficult thing to do mm. and requires a lot of sort of deep thinking mm. and a constant reassessment because you, you've got to know where you are to sort of understand what's going on around you. You've got to position your, understand your position and read the context of, of your environment, mm. whether that's academic or otherwise. Yeah. And so, yeah. Absolutely. Any, any sort of question that comes my way that's, you know, is, is oh, Pacific Studies, well, like what do you really do? Is it really academic, you know? Mm. I mean, that's a key aspect of that, mm. that academic rigour that you're talking about, I think. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and in that way... Pacific Studies becomes a really crucial tool for people who don't have connections to the Pacific Islands, like I hadn't before I studied it. 
And, and now I do. Like now I have friends all across the region. But in the initial stages and, and still continuing today, like Pacific Studies teaches me about myself and it makes me think critically about the role of Australia and about like it teaches me about race and it teaches me about gender and it makes me have some I guess like critical conversations with myself about those things in ways that are sometimes like not always comfortable like often it's quite challenging but it's it's always productive always generative that's a really good perspective wow so um what is it that makes Pacific Studies at the ANU, I guess, unique in a way, um, like compared to other universities and other Pacific-based um, mm. universities especially? When I started out in Pacific Studies, I read a bunch of articles that kind of talked about, you know, until now the centre of Pacific history has been Canberra, but not anymore. And I was like, what on earth is going on here? Because as an undergrad, I didn't have access to like the research side of things, really. So ANU has been really, I guess, like it has had a critical mass of people who research the Pacific, particularly in history and anthropology. And there have been some big names that have come and gone in that. It has not always centred Pacific Islanders. It has not always and definitely to this day not employed enough Pacific Islanders. And I think that those are important things for us to try to confront, like what that means. I've just finished writing a paper that I'm hoping to present at a conference later this year that kind of talks about how we like collect things from the Pacific. We collect knowledges, we collect, you know, things in cooms that we hang on the wall and we don't even like label. And we like build them up around us in order to demonstrate like a proximity with the region and an intimacy with the region. And um, an expertise as well. And an expertise, like an authority yeah. to talk on it. Exactly. Like a claim of mastery and expertise that I've always been really like suspicious of because I certainly cannot imagine being an expert on anything especially not a place that covers a third of the planet like and what Papua New Guinea alone has 800 languages yeah (laughs) yeah so I guess I've always been suspicious of the idea that we could ever be experts on anyone and I think going back to ANU like I love the College of Asia and the Pacific it's where I spent almost a third of my life um but it's I I think that we have a real problem in the way that we expect undergrads particularly like really motivated or talented undergrads to be specifically like interested in a niche from day one. Like we don't really allow people the opportunity to like move around and maybe take a Pacific studies course if they want to, or maybe like, you know, take first semester talk person next year, like things like that. <laughs> Little plug. Yeah. Um, <laughs> <to our> listeners. <laughs> but, you know, like we, we put so much pressure on people often when they're straight out of high school to be like, are you going to be, you know, an expert on this country in this particular time in this disciplinary lens? And if not, what are you even doing here? Yeah, um, I, I don't know if this is the place, but <laughs> I mean, the ANU's marketing campaign of you are the ANU, you are the cure for cancer, you are, I mean, it's that a lot to live up to. <laughs> seriously? And it, 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 it individualizes you immediately. It doesn't open you up to the collaborative nature of what uni should be like because, heck, I mean, I, half the academics here are not writing individual papers. They're always collaborating with people. And, that's, and they mm. always say that's the one of the most challenging things to do. Mm. And that's because we're taught from, you know, day one that you're an individual and you should be excellent and you alone are going to do all of this thing. And mm. that's absolute bullshit, yeah. I'm afraid. <laughs> and it's so liberating then yeah. to be like, 
oh, I don't need to know everything. Yeah. I don't need to have read everything. Because that opens you up to learning. Yeah. It breaks down that barrier and lets the knowledge come in rather than sort of being like, yep, okay, now I do this and da 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 Yeah, absolutely. And you blink it yeah. then otherwise. Mm. <laughs> okay, that's very good. Question. We've got yeah. some strong opinions. Yeah. Strong opinions, fair. <laughs> yep. um, this next question might have some more strong opinions too. So, what is Australia's place in the Pacific? Oh. Strong opinions. <laughs> <laughs> more like, uh, who knows? Like, it's constantly debated. Yeah, absolutely. And certainly we've seen changes, uh, you know, in the past decade. I think, yeah, we see changes almost constantly For since sure. Australia became a. And that's. Maybe the inconsistency is perhaps one of the big things. I don't know. Perhaps that defines it in a way. Yeah. Yeah. Whenever I go to a gathering of people who do kind of like more like development studies or policy studies stuff, like the focus is always this like really deep, I don't know, like like collective freak out about like, it seems like the Pacific is not is no longer listening to everything Australia says. <laughs> like there is an assumption that we as like the biggest country and one of the most developed countries in the region that we get to tell other people what to do. And yeah. Pacific Islands like you know don't necessarily need to like involve themselves in that. Like there are there are so many other ways of like doing things that don't necessarily look like the Australian carbon copy. So, yeah, I mean, that's one thing. The other thing is like that Australia has had a much deeper involvement in the Pacific than most Australians recognise. Like Papua New Guinea was a colony of Australia. We don't think about ourselves as colonisers. Well, like, you know, my supervisor's research on, on phosphate, like the agricultural industries in Australia and New Zealand blossomed and are continually like productive because of the phosphate that we mined from Banabar and Nauru. Yeah. Um, and left as wastelands and now yeah. populate with asylum seekers. It's Absolutely. Um, complex and contested histories wherever you sort of look. For sure. And we think about aid and we think about flows of people and we think about remittances and... There are all those things, but in terms of like how I think Australia should see itself in the Pacific is perhaps what I try to think about. I think that Australia should be more humble <laughs> and say like there's a lot that we can learn from our neighbours. Like if you want to make it slightly easier, there's a lot we can learn from New Zealand, you know, and we don't often think about that. There, there are so many insights into um, the ways that you can um, exist sustainably or like form a cohesive society or honour your ancestors or things like that, that like they have really awesome methods of doing that in the Pacific. And we're like, oh, well, mm, maybe another day. And it's like a condescending attitude. And I would like to see that totally erased. <laughs> yeah. And, and more of a partnership in which you're sort of open to that idea of learning from other people, at least open. I mean, that's like, let, let's make that a start, Yeah, you know, instead of like dismissing it or tokenistically kind of saying, yeah. oh, you know, but in reality, you're not really doing anything yeah. at all. And I think it, it still stems from the idea that, you know, our idea of development is still very much this kind of Western model of development. And that's that's the sort of pinnacle. It's this linear progression. You go mm. from zero to hero and suddenly you're in charge of ruling the world, you know. Mm. 
it's and that's like totally a, problematic. Cause, a big game yeah. of like, snakes and ladders, but like the final piece is like full capitalism. Yeah. It's like, <laughs> no. doesn't need to be the other way. <laughs> yeah, can you then elaborate more on that then, this sort of Western model of development and why is it so applicable to Pacific? Well, I think the biggest one has been the sort of economic rationales that have been sort of applied to the Pacific, of the neoliberal agenda that has sort of come up with these ideas that a cash economy is the only way to move forward, privatize everything, create economies of scale, Mm. um, resource mining, make use of, you know, exploit your comparative advantage. God, that shits me all. (laughs) (laughs) You know? Um, But in, in a place like Vanuatu, where 90% of, like, I don't actually know the exact figures, but I think it's closer to 80%, or at least in the Solomon Islands, mm. of people live in rural mm. areas or classified as rural or remote areas. And they don't interact with the, the cash economy because that's not the primary economy. Mm. There's a traditional economy um, which operates and operates far more effectively, some would say, than the cash economy does. Um, if you look at something like the global financial crisis, um, in 2009, uh, Greenpeace did a study of Vanuatu and found that they were barely affected by the, ca- um, by the global financial crisis because they had this alternate economy running parallel that absorbed a lot of the shock. Um, and because it obviously wasn't tied to some financial market over in Wall Street on the other side of the world, they were able to mitigate a lot of the effects really effectively. And it it forms this kind of social network uh, that allows you to you sort of access a lot of the sort of like social care. Um, there's always land. And the idea of like having to privatize land again mm. is part of that, that, that neoliberal agenda. And selling those parcels of land off inevitably leads to the alienation of people and this um, I don't know, I, f- I feel like it probably conflates a lot of the issues around urbanization and things like that. Mm. And Oh, I don't know, I could go on a bit. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And I guess at the centre of that is this assumption that we often have in Australia that our way of running an economy gives you security and continuity and it's something you can trust. And I think that perhaps we need to think about the fact that security and continuity and like a, a trust in the system is perhaps more possible when you are, um, when you have like a history like ours where you have like heaps of resources to exploit and like a sort of like favored colonial history where you get to think of yourself as part of the West and you know like it mm-hmm. it takes a few other like variables in the mix but like societies like ours are now like like the earth is on fire <laughs> you know <laughs> like climate change is is like yeah has been contributed to like the problem of climate change has been created by industrialized nations like pumping terrible things into the atmosphere and now you see like you know bougie white people in urban australia being like what about community gardens why don't we grow our own food and i am totally behind that love a community garden but it's nothing new like people have been doing that for like tens of thousands of years all over the world and they're still doing it and those people are are having you know, development experts tell them that that's not the best way to get prosperity and growth. Well, it is the best way perhaps to exist on the planet in a way that doesn't burn the planet to a crisp. So, yeah, again, a lot to learn yeah. from our neighbours. <laughs> yeah, I think we get a, a really false sense of of security and, and continuity because we can't see beyond each financial year. We're so blinkered by that and and sort of, oh, you know, what return on, on our investment for the next sort of, you know, two to five years. But what happens in 50 years when, 
you know, the state of the earth is going to revert to something to 20,000 years ago when, or 250 million years ago when, um, I was just reading a paper, it was really actually interesting. They thought that um, microbes um, might have been responsible for a huge um, mass extinction where levels of methane and um, various other gases increased the acidity of the ocean, <laughs> funnily enough, um, and the temperature of the earth and created a lot of toxic gases. Um, obviously, minus the toxic gases, a lot of the conditions were similar 250 million years ago in terms of, you know, the um, acidity of the ocean and you know, 90% of the life forms were wiped out. We're already seeing the sort of rates of extinction rise. We already know that the oceans are becoming more acidic. We're seeing coral reefs die off. We're seeing all these things. And so, you know, in 50, 60, 70 years, what's, what, what, what future are we facing? Mm-hmm. I think we've, we've got a really false sense of trust in, in the, the sort of society we live in. And mm-hmm. I think it, it's, it's, it's fed a, a lot by the idea that there isn't a way to change it, that it's too ingrained now and that it's too difficult to change. Mm. And Yeah bullshit yeah. to that too but all it would take is just learning from indigenous yes. people like literally that in every place how have the indigenous people of that place managed the land and like well Look not just it. managed from like a top-down thing but like worked with the land and the environment in like a and yeah like in a like truly engaged way and like do that and indigenous <laughs> and indigenous australia again is like another Incredible example. And there's a lot mm. we could learn in terms of from the Pacific in the sort of way we treat Indigenous Australians. For, uh, Greg Fry's Framing the Islands brings this up briefly. Um, but, talk, but if Australia sort of, you know, engaged in a little bit of reflexivity in how it relates to the Pacific, it would see that it applies the same sort of thinking to, to uh, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islanders here. And that's, that's you know the world's oldest continuing culture that have lived on a continent for 65, 70,000 years. Mm. It's, yeah, that kind of knowledge mm. has such a role to play in society. And there's knowledges like that across the Pacific. Mm. Well, I think you've made a very convincing argument. <laughs> studies right there. Um, and thank you so much. I think we're out of time at this point, but thank you so much for such a fantastic discussion. Um, we've hoped to change some listeners' perspective on Pacific studies. Um, the Monsoon Project is interested to hear your thoughts. So you can reach us on Facebook at The Monsoon Project or on Twitter at Monsoon underscore project. Goodbye for now and tune into our next podcast.